Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The dawn was wet on March 29, 1998. This was the norm for the sleepy hamlet of Mount Lake Terrace on Washington's Puget Sound. But 34-year-old Chris Turgeon and 27-year-old Blaine Applin didn't notice the rain. They were deep in thought, preparing to carry out God's latest demand. Blaine had spent the roughly 19-hour drive from San Diego, California, manically praying. From the passenger seat, he studied his spiritual leader who seemed so calm, so focused. Blaine wondered why he couldn't match Chris's serenity. He begged God for a sign. As the pair neared their old neighborhood, Blaine saw it, a magnificent rainbow. Chris claimed it was a sign from God that they were on the right path. It seemed it would be a blessed journey. Finally, they reached their old friend's trailer. After a day of nonstop driving, Chris only managed to nod to Blaine as if to say, it's now or never. Blaine exited the car. With each step, Blaine's prayers intensified. He muttered, it's God's will, it's God's will. He knocked on the door and his old buddy, Dan Jess, opened up. Blaine said, Dan, I need your help. Dan smiled and his eyes overflowed with sympathy for his estranged friend. But before he could welcome him in, Blaine put a pistol to his head. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. This week in a one-part episode, we're taking a deep dive into the tight-knit community known as the Gatekeepers. The cult was established as a casual Bible study group in 1991, but born-again founder Chris Turgeon believed God called him to bring judgment on Earth. In the late 1990s, Chris grew paranoid that a secret satanic branch of the government was after him. He armed his members to the hilt and convinced them to carry out illegal acts on his behalf, including murder. Coming up, we'll put Christopher Turgeon under the microscope. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Stories of Chris Turgeon's upbringing are few and far between. But he claimed his biological father was a drunk who beat his mother. Lucky for Chris, his father didn't stick around. When Chris was still young, his mother met his stepfather. Edward Turgeon was a relatively decent man who adopted Chris and his two siblings. Edward loved the children, but took a special interest in Chris when they bonded over music. Edward can recall Chris's many school concerts, where he played the saxophone and clarinet. Edward remembered Chris as a quiet child with a short attention span who kept to himself. As a teenager, friends used to call Chris Opie, a shout out to the kid from The Andy Griffith Show. In his free time, he spent hours reading the Bible alone in his room. While the rest of Chris's earliest years remain a total mystery, we do know he left home to attend a Bible college around 1983. At 19 years old, Chris knew the Bible inside and out. Classmates often came to him for life advice, and he had a knack for quoting just the right piece of scripture to help. Chris was also known for his musical talent. Whenever he got the chance, he sat in the campus quad playing his saxophone. Students gathered to hear his jazzy renditions of their favorite hymns. While he didn't advertise it to his schoolmates, when Chris started college, he heard the voice of God. Early in his first fall semester, he locked himself in his dorm room to read the Bible cover to cover. Out of nowhere, everything went dark. A pinprick of light illuminated a passage from Ezekiel 33:33, And they shall know a prophet has been among them. Then the Lord appeared to tell Chris that he was the reincarnation of the prophet Elijah. God said he was chosen to prepare Christians for judgment. At first, Chris wondered if he was dreaming, but then he heard God's voice a few nights later, affirming that he was meant to lead a cleric's life. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Writing for the British Psychological Society, researchers Simon McCarthy-Jones and Eleanor Longden note that hearing God's voice has often been interpreted as a symptom of brain disease synonymous with schizophrenia. While Chris believed his visions were genuine, he was aware that others might think he was psychotic. Afraid others would mock him, Chris initially kept the divine visions to himself. Fresh out of college, Chris took the Lord's message to heart and started preaching wherever he could. He made his way around the garden variety suburbs of Seattle, but he had trouble finding stable pastoral work at a church. Chris needed to make money somehow and eventually found a job managing his small apartment complex in Everett, Washington, just outside of Seattle. Chris's life remained relatively uninteresting until around 1991, when God began speaking to 27-year-old Chris Turgeon once again. According to Chris, God ordered him to form his own church right there in his little apartment. 
Chris reached out to a handful of guys he'd connected with around town and invited them to participate in a casual Bible study group. They met regularly, and Chris called the congregation to be Ahaba Asa Prophetic Ministries. In Hebrew, that meant to act with God's love. Intent on growing his congregation, Chris asked existing tenants to attend group meetings. While recruitment wasn't his strong suit, a couple of lost souls accepted Chris's invitations. The seven members that joined felt soothed by his presence. Chris listened and feigned concern. He offered his members thoughtful responses when they asked about the meaning of life or where a loved one went after they died. Not only was he comforting to his mini-flock, but he made gathering for Ahaba Asa meetings fun. He offered snacks and played biblical trivia games. Some members recalled that convening in Chris's apartment felt like a family get-together. As the new preacher in town, Chris made a lasting impression on local pastors. His peers admitted he was articulate and well-versed in scripture, but they were concerned. Chris seemed to center his message on the destruction in the final days. This worried some preachers. It seemed Chris pushed all the right buttons to get his congregation to depend on him instead of God. The more Chris claimed to hear the Lord speak, the more he claimed that he alone could sense God's will on earth. Chris then tightened his grip over his church members by implementing strict rules. He even dictated when they could engage in intimate acts or what television they could watch. The members trusted in Chris, so they complied. Chris tried to expand his church by poaching congregants from the neighborhood clergy, earning him much of their ire. But it seemed that Chris may have only felt empowered by the competition's disapproval, as it meant he was getting noticed. Chris escalated the disagreement in 1992, when he claimed that the local church's teachings were deviant, and he warned church leaders that Jesus instructed him that a mighty wind would set Washington churches aflame. Later that same year, Chris's prophecies began to come true. Churches started burning down around Seattle's suburbs, devastating the parishioners. Even churches in Chris's own neighborhood were affected. One night, the streets near Chris's apartment complex were filled with a warm glow. It's possible to imagine Chris waking up to the light through his window. Barefoot, he might have stepped out the front door as a hungry fire devoured the roof of the church down the street. He couldn't help but smirk. He said they were all damned, but nobody listened. And now, the Lord's wrath brought smoke and flames. To Chris, the destruction wrought by the serial arsonist was affirmation of his creator's message. While other pastors were comforting frightened congregants, Chris used the tragedies as a marketing opportunity. Chris told his followers to recruit as many people as they could. One area preacher called the local papers to out Chris for his total lack of sensitivity. But the small-time media criticism didn't stop his exploitative response to the devastation. Though Chris was in no way responsible for the acts of arson, he did exhibit a blatant disregard for the people who had been affected by the tragedies. And by early 1993, as his congregation grew in size, 29-year-old Chris's teachings grew more radical. He constantly gave sermons about the end of days. He routinely preached about male dominance over women, considering feminism an abomination. He also had an intense hatred for homosexuals, and he condemned almost any alternative point of view. His clerical peers were deeply concerned. 
In fact, one pastor called him a dangerous man. Instead of worrying about his reputation among other men of God, Chris focused on spinning his influence to snare those who came to hear him preach. Sometime after the fires subsided, he changed the name of his ministry to The Gatekeepers. Chris told his followers that they were chosen by God as the keepers of the gate to salvation. He said he was the sole gatekeeper to their spiritual evolution, and only he could answer their questions about sanctity. If his congregants grew skeptical, he would simply remind them that he was the one who spoke with God. He said the Lord showed him a vision of the apocalypse. He warned his followers that the world as they knew it would end in 22 years on March 22, 2004. They were either with him and God, or they would end up in hell. Next, Chris Turgeon's radical teachings lead to radical violence. Hi, it's Greg. Parcast has a brand new series sure to become your next podcast obsession. It's called Medical Murders, and it exposes a dark and disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join host Alastair Burton as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By 1993, 29-year-old preacher Chris Turgeon was growing his casual Bible study group, The Gatekeepers, in his small apartment. Though generally disarming, the young religious leader had started to exhibit characteristics that some saw as dangerous. Chris Turgeon's church consisted of a few devoted families, and three men in their early 20s made up the core of the cult. They were Steve Chapman, Blaine Applin, and Brian Stevens. The three of them were vulnerable, and Chris was there. Blaine Applin was addicted to alcohol and drugs and looking for help. Chapman had low self-esteem and no career prospects. Stevens had no idea what he wanted to do. He was still in college and searching for greater meaning. Dan Jess, a man almost 15 years older than the others, was another key member. He was a former Marine, also looking for meaning in his life. All of these men needed guidance, and Chris was the only one offering it to them. 
The group also included some of the men's wives and young children. All in, the total number of congregants in Chris's flock grew to between 15 and 25 members. But what they lacked in size, they made up for in devotion to Chris. Chris controlled everything the gatekeepers did. He monitored what they said and what they were allowed to watch on television. He even determined who they could marry and when they were allowed to hold a ceremony. By the end of 1993, Chris had managed to isolate his flock from their friends and family members. He wanted to pit his tiny army of disciples against the evil world and ensure their dependence on him. To cement their loyalty, he shared an important story. This likely made the gatekeepers feel special, like they were part of some divine mission. He told them God once came to him and said, You are the Elijah to come. I did not allow your father to kill you or your mother to kill you. You are to bring a message of restoration and judgment on this world. In the Old Testament, Elijah was a vessel through which God performed many miracles. The prophet brought a dead boy back to life and summoned fire from the skies. He was also one of the only people able to pass through the gates of heaven alive. Chris also told the group Elijah was God's law enforcer and that God wanted them to kill the wicked. To him, that meant the deaths of those in the LGBTQ plus community, healthcare workers who facilitated abortions, and witches, which seemed to be his blanket term for anyone who supported women's rights. He even decided that people who casually read their horoscopes were on the gatekeeper's plunder list. But Chris wouldn't just tell his minions about these evildoers. He presented God's vision in song. Whenever he had an important message to deliver, he dusted off his chair, sat with his musical instrument, and welcomed Elijah's spirit as he started to play. Like the Pied Piper, Chris played eerie tunes and sang indecipherable lyrics. The ritual was his version of speaking in tongues. But if anyone questioned his teachings, Chris threatened them with eternal damnation. In fact, he often lost patience with the group's child members for asking too many questions, and the penalties for acting against the prophet were harsh. According to some accounts, one night he allegedly ordered the gatekeepers to line up their kids single file. Then he had their parents beat them hard with paddles. Even family pets weren't free from Chris's violent bidding. One story claims that when a dog scratched him while playing fetch, Chris had the animal shot. Shortly after, Chris began teaching that the Holy Father urged certain infractions as a way to eradicate evil in the world. Then Chris laid out plans for the gatekeepers to commit fraud and theft, assuring his followers that God wouldn't let them go to jail. With Christ behind them, the gatekeepers had no problem swiping food from liquor stores, pickpocketing, or beating up innocent people to get the cash they needed. They thought they were doing God's work, but in reality, their thefts and indiscretions were just a way to subsidize Chris's latest plot, amassing an arsenal of weapons intended to protect his group from the apocalypse. By 1996, 32-year-old Chris was reciting passages from right-wing survivalist literature almost as much as he quoted scripture. His desire to arm the group became an obsession. Many of Chris's sermons were drawn from the Book of Revelation. His lessons highlighted the apocalypse. One day, Chris told the group God wanted the gatekeepers to declare war on the government. Without hesitation, most members agreed to the mission. 
But one member didn't accept Chris's ominous rhetoric and the resulting criminal activity. It was the ex-Marine Dan Jess. Dan believed in a loving God and questioned the version who spoke through Chris. Dan voiced his dissent, but Chris shut him down, saying if he wasn't with the gatekeepers, he was against them. Dan did what he felt was right and excommunicated himself from Chris's church. Dan's departure left Chris feeling endangered. Though Dan had done nothing to inspire it, Chris obsessed over the thought of someone reporting the group to Child Protective Services. So, in the fall of 1997, 33-year-old Chris told the remaining gatekeepers they were moving to a town called Paula. Located 40 miles north of San Diego, California, Chris found a home in the middle of nowhere situated on five acres of a vast Indian reservation. There, the gatekeepers basked in unbeatable privacy and all shared the same house. Chris secured the property by building a high chain-link fence. The new compound consisted of the house, a chicken coop, and a few rickety storage sheds. From here, Chris could protect the gatekeepers from the influence of outsiders. Because the outside world posed such a threat to the sect, both men and women carried weapons with them at all times. Guns and other end-of-days provisions were hidden throughout the property. To cover the costs of their basic needs, the gatekeepers sometimes wrote rubber checks, neglected to pay their rent, and ignored their bills. Again, Chris used bits of scripture like eye for eye or tooth for tooth to convince his devotees that they deserved to take the property of the wicked. In order to survive, members had to agree with Chris. They depended on their leader for shelter, food for themselves and their children, and even for emotional support. Chris successfully fostered their utter dependence on him, with the exception, of course, of Dan Jess. Dan was a low-key guy, a 40-year-old often described as a gentle giant who wouldn't hurt a fly. He had always been deeply spiritual, even before joining the gatekeepers. And while he enjoyed the camaraderie of the faithful members, he felt their mission had gone awry. When the gatekeepers skipped town, Dan was left confused about his beliefs. He tried to reintegrate among old friends, calling people he hadn't seen since he joined the sect a couple of years prior. Struggling with his faith after his departure from the group, he told one friend he thought about just giving up. For Dan, staying away proved to be almost as hard as witnessing the group's corruption. And these thoughts are normal for former cult members. According to Dr. Marlene Winnell, Leaving the fold means the loss of friends and family support at a crucial time of personal transition. Leaving also means debilitating anxiety, grief, and anger. Furthermore, the phobia indoctrination makes it difficult to avoid the stabbing thought that one has made a terrible mistake, thinking, what if they were right? But in his heart of hearts, Dan knew Chris and the gatekeepers weren't right. He turned to his childhood friends for help with rehabilitating his faith. They prayed with him for hours. Slowly, Dan repaired his spiritual practice. He found a new job and worked to adopt a more hopeful outlook. On March 27, 1998, 40-year-old Dan Jess went to see a friend and pick up a new Bible. Dan said, I know what it's like to have the peace of God and love in me. Around that same time, Dan received a phone call from the bank he was implicated as having signed a bum check. Immediately, he called Chris. Dan told Chris he didn't agree with the sect's continued criminal activity. He said his God wouldn't condone theft or dishonesty. 
He wanted no part of hurting others, even if they were wicked. Chris likely insisted there would be hell to pay if Dan didn't join the group in Paula. That's when Dan called Chris a false prophet. Dan said if Chris didn't leave him be, he would let the police know about the group's transgressions. Those in the house with Chris remember him being unusually angry after the call. Fuming, Chris called an emergency meeting of the gatekeepers. He told them Dan was going to disclose their frauds and location. In a panic, he ran to the piano to summon the word of God. Chris hit the keys hard. As God sang through him, he called on the gatekeepers to destroy their number one enemy, Dan Jess. Suddenly, 27-year-old Blaine Applin jumped up. He confessed God told him to shoot Dan Jess. The other members erupted with praise, and Blaine just kept singing, This is God's will. This is God's will. As they sped up the interstate that spring morning in 1998, 34-year-old Chris blasted Christian speed metal. He was psyching Blaine up to carry out God's mission, but Blaine didn't seem to hear the music. Instead, he kept mumbling his mantra, This is God's will. This is God's will. Clad in camouflage, Chris was as cool as a cucumber. By the time they crossed the Oregon-Washington border, they'd been driving for about 16 hours straight. But Blaine couldn't sit still. He begged God for a sign, anything. The skies opened up. Their beat-up sedan kicked up lots of water, but they drove on. When Chris finally pulled off the highway, the threat of rain had subsided. The men made their way to Mount Lake Terrace. Though it was barely dawn, Blaine got the sign he'd been hoping for. Through the windshield, the men saw the sky light up with the most beautiful hues. Cutting the horizon was a rainbow. This was the undeniable signal from God Blaine needed. Excited, he chanted, This is God's will. This is God's will. Chris and Blaine pulled up to an old trailer parked behind a dilapidated house. It was still so early, the street was silent, except for the slow drip of residual rain on the trailer's tin awning. Chris parked. Blaine got out of the car and made his way to the trailer door. A few seconds passed before Blaine heard a rustling inside. Within a minute, Dan Jess opened the door. Though half asleep, he was genuinely pleased to see his friend. But Blaine looked distraught. Dan asked if he was okay. Blaine could only nod, but not convincingly. He said he needed help and that Chris was out of control. Dan's eyes widened with empathy. Having recently struggled to cut ties himself, he assumed to know what Blaine must have been going through. He wanted to invite his friend in and calm him, but he wouldn't get the chance. Blaine raised his Glock 9mm pistol and sent several bullets racing into Dan's body. He watched his friend hit the floor. In shock, he stood in the doorway looking at the corpse. It wasn't until the sight of Dan's blood hit him that Blaine came to and bolted for the getaway car. Up next, Chris and Blaine stand trial for the murder of Dan Jess. Now back to the story. Throughout the 1990s, Chris Turgeon, the hyper-intellectual preacher who sometimes displayed sociopathic tendencies, convinced his flock, the gatekeepers, he was born to bring judgment to this earth. In 1998, 34-year-old Chris and his disciple, 27-year-old Blaine Applin, 
drove from the Southern California desert to the suburbs of Seattle, Washington, to murder former cult member Dan Jess. Mount Lake Terrace wasn't a town familiar with crime. In fact, homicides only occurred there on average about once every 12 years. Though there were no glaring signs of forced entry, the police did have a few leads. For one thing, Dan's neighbors saw a white male running from the scene of the crime to the getaway car. Another acquaintance explained to the police that Dan used to be involved with a fanatic religious sect. Based on his description, authorities pulled the images of four possible cult members. Without hesitation, the witness identified Blaine Applin as the primary suspect. Blaine also left another clue at the crime scene, a collection of discarded shell casings. Though Chris and Blaine had wiped the casings of their fingerprints, investigators discerned the type of gun used. It was a Glock 9mm. If they could find it, they'd have their murderer. All signs pointed to the gatekeepers, but their whereabouts were unclear. Investigators entered the cult members' credit cards and other information into a national database. Then they waited. Chris and Blaine thought they'd gotten off scot-free. Feeling totally backed by God, they went back to San Diego and stepped up their criminal activity. They robbed what they considered to be evil businesses, usually taking a few hundred bucks from each establishment. In June 1998, the authorities finally got a hit. A wife of one of the male cult members used her social security number at a postal store in Carlsbad, California, just north of San Diego. This confirmed the cult's location on the Indian reservation. Then in July, 34-year-old Chris and 27-year-old Blaine entered the risque lingerie store in San Diego wearing wigs and sunglasses. Once inside, they held a young model at gunpoint. They demanded she fork over her cash. When she refused, Chris and Blaine handcuffed her, stole her earrings, and made a run for it. Fleeing the scene, Chris made an illegal turn and sped off erratically. Right away, he was spotted by San Diego PD officer Leonard Leffner. Officer Leffler was hosting his young nephew on a civilian ride-along. To show him the ropes, Leffler radioed in for a license plate check. Then he flipped the siren and trailed the speeding duo. Officer Leffler tried to pull the men over to no avail. He followed Chris and Blaine onto the interstate. Suddenly, the officer and his nephew heard a gunshot, then another. Leffler called for backup. Blaine pocketed his pistol and grabbed a loaded AK-47 from the back seat. He fired relentlessly at the officer and the kid, penetrating their windshield. To protect the child, Leffler pulled to the shoulder. But by then, Highway Patrol and a few other city officers had arrived to take over. Three new cop cars trailed Chris and Blaine until one officer was able to enact a pit maneuver, forcing Chris and Blaine to turn abruptly sideways. Chris lost his handle on the vehicle and spun into the shoulder. Surrounded, the men didn't put up a fight and the police got their suspects. Immediately following the chase, the cops took Chris and Blaine into custody. They identified the two criminals as the cult members the Mount Lake Terrace police had been inquiring after. They discovered two revolvers and a semi-automatic rifle with a scope in the men's possession. Finally, while patting Blaine down, the cops found a Glock 9mm pistol. It was just the piece of evidence the Washington team had been looking for. In addition to being accused of shooting at the San Diego patrol car, 
the men were charged for a string of California robberies, attempted armed robberies, and false imprisonment. The authorities in San Diego contacted the investigators from Mount Lake Terrace. The Washington team flew down to test the Glock. It didn't take long to confirm the gun was Dan Jess's murder weapon. With this physical evidence, the investigators could obtain the warrants they needed to search the Pala compound. A SWAT team was sent to the desert house, and they found weapons everywhere. There were firearms in the living quarters and hidden in the bushes. The garage was full of handguns and AK-47s. By catching Chris then, the police felt they had prevented a much more violent act in the future. This might explain why visitors didn't rush to see Chris in jail. Blaine, on the other hand, was quickly visited by his parents, who traveled down to see their son. During their visit, Blaine was stoic. He seemed slightly remorseful, but he told his parents God made him kill Dan Jess. He said the Lord wouldn't let him rot in jail. Blaine's parents knew he was caught in Chris's snare. They tried to reason with their boy, but Blaine wouldn't have it. He stood up and left, escorted from the room by the guards. From their prison cells, Chris and Blaine awaited their trials. Justice was swift, as they were soon convicted of 17 felonies in California alone. Blaine was sentenced to 101 years in prison, while Chris Turgeon was sentenced to 89 years. After facing justice in San Diego, they were transported to Washington for the homicide hearing. Throughout the trial, Chris sat upright, confident the Lord was on his side. He testified to hearing God's voice instruct him to carry out Dan's execution. Almost all courts consider this type of hallucination as a sign of mental illness, but Chris refused insanity pleas. Instead, Chris insisted God's commandment to kill Dan was real. Though passionate about his claims, he seemed sane in every other respect. According to Linda Ross Meyer's article in the Pace Law Review, entitled Unreasonable Revelations, God Told Me to Kill, divine revelation is the only sign of unusual cognition in this case. The two murderers seem to be following traditional religious doctrines for evaluating their divine communications, including being filled with hope and passion after being given an instruction and feeling at peace with your actions. At the trial, Chris and Blaine testified that together they had prayed and asked God to stop them if they were on the wrong path. They even told the court God sent them seven rainbows. Though Chris was staunch in his defense throughout the trial, Blaine apologized again and again. He described intense feelings of remorse for taking his innocent friend's life. Ultimately, his defense laid out that Blaine was deceived and manipulated by a masterful psychopath. Christopher Turgeon. The defense's psychiatrist testified that Blaine knew his acts were illegal, but they couldn't say whether or not he possessed the ability to tell right from wrong. Still, the jury rejected his plea of insanity, convicting him of first-degree murder. Chris, on the other hand, put on quite a show in court. He said his defense team, who tried to prove his insanity, was working for Satan. He maintained he was entirely sane, but took timeouts during his testimony to condemn the country for its wickedness. He also relentlessly repeated that destruction was nigh. He sang the national anthem and attempted to show the jury photos of abortions. Additionally, he said if God asked him to, he would do it all over again. 
Chris was also found guilty of first-degree murder. In addition to his 101-year sentence in California, the state of Washington sentenced Blaine to 39 years for the homicide. As Chris awaited his punishment, he delivered a stirring 10-minute sermon to the court. He railed on America for legalizing abortion, supporting gay rights, and allowing equal rights for women. He begged the court to repent from their wicked deeds. He reminded his audience that judgment was at hand. And in fact, his was. Chris was sentenced to 50 years in prison for Dan Jess's murder. After Chris and Blaine were locked up, the rest of the gatekeepers disbanded. Members were devastated. They trusted their leader, the supposed prophet Elijah, and had to work to accept their new reality. Their hero was just a mad con man. Strangely, Chris's prediction that the world would end on March 22, 2004 was somewhat accurate, for it was on that day that the State Court of Appeals upheld his conviction for the murder of Dan Jess. Today, Christopher Turgeon remains in jail. Inmates say he's welcome because he can still be heard preaching. And on occasion, he even plays his music for all to hear. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Chris Turgeon and the gatekeepers, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Justification of Religious Violence by Steve Clark, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Billy Pace with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by John Levinson, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Craig Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, listeners. Remember to check out the new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>